You're listening to Q Marriage Mentors with Jeff Lutz, a podcast featuring conversations with remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples. What makes great relationships work? Jeff will ask the questions. You'll hear the answers. Together, we'll learn. Welcome back, everybody. Jeff here. Today, my guests are Katie Kuntz and Paige Schilt from Austin, Texas. Katie works as a therapist in private practice, and Paige is director of the Sanger Learning Center at the University of Texas, and also the author of the very popular Queer Rock Love. Katie and Paige have been together 18 years, and thank you for letting me come into your lovely home. It's good to see you. So tell me how you all met and about your coming out experiences. Well, I have been, you know, rural Texas, I guess rural-ish, down on the coast, south of Houston, uh, Lake Jackson area, Dow Chemical, uh, brought in a lot of folks that were, you know, I think more progressive Thank God. Then when I was born in East Texas, in the Piney Woods, we moved to uh, Lake Jackson when I was seven. Thank, thank God, really. And uh, because I think it would be a lot harder coming out. It was hard enough because my dad was a football coach, and it was, you know, the 70s. Um, 5A Texas football, and, you know, is a big deal, high school football. And, you know, so, so. I, everybody knew me, plus I was an athlete and goofball. I think I probably, you know, as sound like a therapist here, but defended against all these feelings um, by just being funny or, you know, goofing around. And um, so a lot of people knew me, and um, I didn't come out until I decided <laughs> that I was going to move to Hollywood. I convinced Dee to come out there because she's extroverted, she came out when she was like 13, sneaking out to the bars in Houston, you know, and telling me all these stories. And I was a conservative, you know, like very naive kid. Like I lived by Sunset Strip and I was like appalled by the sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember just like... I had a hard time coming out because my gender identity did not match my body. Didn't have any language for that. So I'd never had any fantasies in my brain of two girls together. You know, my fantasies were me as a boy body, you know, with girl. So it really didn't make sense to me. And so it was very hard to come out. Um, So finally... I sent Dee Dee out on a mission. We went to this bar that we lived a block from, Peanuts in Hollywood. And uh, she, was, you know, like basically sent her out for people to come talk to. And she ended up with the, my first girlfriend, Deanna, and Dee Dee decided they were going to be like, are we going to be girlfriends tonight or not? When they went to the bar and Deanna came and moved into our house because she was kind of a little couch surfer type in the middle of Hollywood. And she was 17, I think. And I was 19. And... So Deanna comes to our house, and then she said, y'all come out and watch us play football at Venice Beach uh, tomorrow on Sunday. And we're like, okay. And so Vivi and I went out to Venice Beach, and it was topless lesbian football. Was that the moment that you knew? I was just, 
paralyzed. And the brother D was like, let me out there. You know? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so then there was a double feature of, of making love and personal best. No, look, Marilyn, anyway, I'm, I'm aging myself now. Paige, does your coming out involve topless volleyball? <laughs> Football. Football. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, there's no topless football. My my coming out is probably about as different from that as could be. I uh, I for a long time when I was in college, I took the very first gay and lesbian studies class at my college in the early nineties. And I just thought that I had an intellectual interest in gay and lesbian studies. <laughs> thought it was fascinating. Um, and so then I applied to go to graduate school. Um, and, and I, you know, wrote an application based on my, in, my, my purely intellectual interest in gay and lesbian studies. <laughs> purely. Purely. Um, and what do you know? I ended up, um, in an English department in Austin, um, with these amazing lesbian professors and tons of fabulous lesbian um, colleagues in my department. And I felt like I had landed in paradise, but I still was thinking like, maybe this is just an intellectual fascination. Maybe this is just a political um, affiliation. I came from a family that didn't really value um, being tuned into yourself and kind of knowing your own impulses and trusting them. So I just kept thinking like, well, if I was a lesbian, someone would like welcome me to the club. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, but I, you know, I found myself constantly uh, kind of hanging out um, on the periphery of queer culture. And actually the first time I saw Katie uh, in the, in the, I guess the late nineties in Austin, there was a, a kind of monthly lesbian dance party called Hip Hop for Ladies. And with a Z. Uh, with a Z. It was very 90s. <laughs> and, um, and I was there. I hadn't come out yet. I, I still had a boyfriend. Um, and I, I was there uh, selling T-shirts for my very serious feminist um, grassroots undertaking. And there was this new band that was going to play. Um, and it, there was a ton of buzz around it. They were called Raunchy Reckless in the Amazons. And it was, <laughs> there was, you know, just was like people, people, there was all this excitement. And um, I remember standing in the back of the room and, and Raunchy Reckless in the Amazon was a Xena-inspired Zena um, performance art band. Um, and they'd come out and they're in these wild costumes um, and, you know, there's, there's someone just like kind of a weird doctor costume. And then there's, there's raunchy herself and she's dressed like Xena, but kind of like a insane clown Xena. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, there's Aphrodite and there's, uh, Gabrielle. And, and then this Viking comes out, um, with like this big, you know, the Viking hat with the horns and a big fur cape and this like over the top prosthetic molded plastic man chest with like pecs and, and washboard abs um, and this big beard. And I'm just, I was fascinated by this person who I couldn't tell, like, uh, cause there were people of multiple genders in the band. And I was just like, couldn't quite put my finger on like, 
is that a girlish boy or a boyish girl? <laughs> you know, like I was, but I was, I've always been really attracted to people who are genderly different. And so I remember being really riveted by this person. Um, and, but you know, at the time I hadn't come out yet. So I was just kind of riveted in a very tortured way. Um, and through a series of like, um, a series of events that unfolded over the next couple of years. Like, you know, I had my first girlfriend, I came out. Um, my first girlfriend actually was the one who convinced me that I should start going to group therapy. Uh, because I had, you know, my family just, they didn't do conflicts well. They didn't do, um, valuing your own feelings well or communicating your feelings or asking what you need, any of the skills that are just basic to a relationship. And so I decided that I would give group therapy a try. Um, and so, you know, it's very nerve wracking. I go into my first group therapy session and, and I'm just sitting on the couch waiting for it to start. And this, this like kind of majestic person with this like long, hair that falls down in our face like comes comes walking in and I'm just like it's the Viking it's the Viking (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that was actually how we met we were both clients in the same uh, group therapy group which uh, it was a it was a group where you weren't allowed to have any outside contact with the people in the group so uh, we couldn't call each other. We couldn't email. We couldn't see each other outside of group. But we pretty we immediately had a super intense crush. Um, and the crazy thing about group therapy is that you have to talk about your crush in front of everybody else in the group. Um, but the other great thing about because we're good little group members, yeah, we were following the rules. So you were compliant. We were compliant. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right up until <laughs> so 15 seconds after I left the group. <laughs> Wait, what happened then? Uh, well, you moved pretty after quickly. You left the group. After I left the group, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, more like 24 hours. 24 hours, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the great thing about meeting in group therapy, even though I'm sure most therapists wouldn't recommend it, is that mm-hmm. you're, you're working on being really open about... Um, your feelings, your past experiences, all your... You know a lot about each other before the first day. (laughs) We wanted to know each other's favorite song, things like that. Once we got to talk outside of group, it was like we knew our, you know, grief around our parents and how we've internalized this and that. But it's like, but but do you like Lucinda? Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) The fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So that actually turned out to be a really great foundation for a relationship. And, um, one of the things that I really value about Katie and at the time, I mean, I think we've become more and more like each other, but at the time she was so direct and, and, um, so real about her feelings. And I had so much like false front. Like I was just a people pleaser and I would just smile, smile, smile all the time, no matter what I was feeling. And, um, I really wanted to learn to be more like she was of just actually saying what I was feeling and uh, being direct. And so I think group was a great place to start in the sense that like, it was like having training wheels for me sure. where I was like, 
okay, the whole reason I'm in here is just to see what I'm feeling. Right. And then it really helped me when we uh, got together to keep that habit of just trying not to hide and being more direct. Tell me more about that, because the research says that allowing your partner to influence you is really, really important. And yet I think a lot of couples are defensive about that, right? Like, you're wrong, I'm right, don't try to tell me what I need to change. (laughs) Uh, So tell me about that process for you all. We have a dance. We try to not take things too seriously, but we have a dance where it's like, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. (laughs) Are you actually dancing (laughs) as a way to kind of lower the defensiveness? Uh, Lower defensiveness, yes, make a joke out of it. Um, I love that. I learned not quickly enough, probably, that Paige is usually right. (laughs) So, um, you know, a lot of times I'm right on things, but we uh, do, do conflict pretty well. Yeah, I would say um, it was hard for me because, I mean, I was really not only attracted to Katie, but also to her family. And I remember that um, one of the first times we ever went to meet her family, um, we were just hanging out with her mom in the living room, and they got into a little fight about something. And I was like, that's it. Better go pack the bags. We're leaving now. They're having a fight. And... And before I even kind of, I was still mentally like, okay, how are we going to leave this situation not too awkwardly? They're laughing again. Like, yes. you know, yes. they just like, <laughs> had conflict and moved through it. And, right. and I had no real, like conflict in my family was such a rupture and it just, there was never any repair and it just left you feeling really terrible. So then you just avoid it more. Um, and so seeing how her family could do that, like move through conflict, was really attractive to me. Um, and just not be afraid of it. I mean, just like she and her mom were super close, but they would also just, you know, get into little fights and then like be okay. I do feel like I'm drawn to the, the gut stuff, you know, getting in it with somebody rather than trying to think out, out of it. And I have to say... Like that's been so important to me now that we're parents because we have a we have a fifteen year old son and uh, you know he's a teenager so we have a lot of conflict right now <laughs> and um, learning how to have conflict and repair um, I'm so glad that I had our relationship as a place to learn how to do that before I became a parent um, you know I think part of being a parent is that you have to be really creative with repair sometimes, you know, because you're teaching them how to have conflict and repair and move through it. But sometimes, you know, you have to go out of your way to create. Can you think of a particular moment where you were highly creative? Yes, I can. We, um, we just had a conflict with our son because his teacher had told us that he needed to do his homework at the same time every day in a distraction-free place. And he really did not want to do that. Like, he wanted to do it in his room with his computer on and his headphones. And and he just was, you know, he's just at an age where he was very resistant to the structure. And, I mean, it, he, it was like he was ready to have World War III over this thing that it was like a really like not a you not know a big deal. like it was like and uh, he got really mad at us and he 
he stormed up to his room and he locked the door and he, he pulled all this furniture in front of his door um, and and he didn't say goodnight to us and and he's just you know up there in a huff and uh, so I waited until he I gave him a lot of time to calm down and um, and then I you know, pushed my way into his room like, <laughs> pushed the furniture aside and I and and I I go in to say goodnight to him and he's like ignoring me he's not talking to me so I lay down next to him and I was like you know I just imagine you know that let's say you run away and you're hanging out under the bridge with the other runaway teenagers and and one of them is like you know my parents beat me and another one is like I was sexually abused and you're gonna be like my parents tried to make me do my homework at the same time. <laughs> I was just like, you know. Did he laugh? He didn't laugh. He didn't did, laugh. No reaction? No reaction. Oh, yeah. But it was like, I could tell when he woke up the next morning that he had had like kind of an attitude readjustment, you know, where it was just like, Yeah. You used your skills as a writer and yeah, storyteller. Yeah, right. It's just like, okay, let's put this in context. It's not really running away size material here. Um, it's coming out of love. Yeah, but, you know, it takes... When somebody's slammed the door and dragged their furniture in front of the door to be willing to bring the repair to them, you know, I think it takes like this deep well of knowing that it's possible to move through the conflict, you know? And I think also for me, just wanting him to learn something different than what I learned Mm. in my family. Katie, can you say more from your perspective, what it's been like to be in a relationship that's non-binary and um, gender has been a big part of your all's lives, both personally and professionally. So can you talk about that? I came out as transgender. You know, it was the 90s. There wasn't a lot of language. It was very hard to talk about. Um, I think we had gender queer at that time. But I came out as transgender, and it was the first time, and, and I came out in my class. And I had come out in my first class at um, college and at um, Stephen F. Austin, I mean, at um, Southwest Texas as gay in the social work 1350 class. So I remember, you know, there were a few of us came out as gay and it was like, felt really good. You know, this was ground that was very scary, uh, being the late nineties. And, uh, so through this time, my, I, I got chest surgery. I figured out that I did not desire to go further like with hormones and things like that too much because I was really identified with mommy as weirdly as that sounds people like I like the sound of mommy yes <laughs> mom that's what our son calls her that's what Waylon calls me because he called her mama and me mommy's now he's 15 you know he calls me mommy at home but I don't I think he probably calls me Katie to his friends yeah <laughs> unless, unless you're like um, oh the Kennedys you know, <laughs> mommy a lot. Um, but, you know, that gave me a, a information about where I, my identity kind of met in the middle, like there. Um, I've always had an identity my body as male. Um, so 
I am here to tell people that there is such a thing as a person in the middle of gender flat, right there in the middle that has a body identity one way and a gender identity that's really, really open, you know. And Paige coined a term genderful. And genderful. Yeah, genderful. And I'd say, yes, I'm not without gender. I am overflowing with gender. What inspired you, Paige, to come up with that term? Uh, I was writing, actually, about parenting. And um, at the time, a lot of people were talking about whether it would be a good idea to try and raise kids gender neutrally. And um, I, I think one thing that actually draws Katie and I together is that we both have a lot of fun with gender. Uh, I identify as femme. We both really like to dress up. Uh, we're both really just interested in gender. And so I didn't really like the idea of trying to raise a gender-neutral kid. I thought trying to raise um, our child in a gender-full environment where he would meet people with so many different gender identities, um, including his gay grandpa and, you know, his butch aunties and his femme aunties and, um, and, uh, and some fluidity. And some, gender. yeah, yeah. And so that it, instead of sort of saying like, let's try to just, you know, I mean, I think gender neutrality is a construct just as much as any, you know, any other gender identity, but for him to be exposed to so many different varieties of doing gender that, um, we would feel confident that he would know what his options were, you know, like that the, the, there was a playful space and a place, um, of, uh, possibility. And, you know, interestingly, he has a pretty normative gender identity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which I sometimes think is just a reaction to us a little bit. Uh, but from pretty early on, um, you know, he liked, his obsession with Thomas the Train, you know, just like this very iconic, like little boy toy. Um, and, you know, he would push the envelope some, especially before he was a teenager with like, when he was a little boy, like painting his nails or stuff like that. But now he's just a self-conscious teenager. Who I wants to remind them about the useful engine. It hasn't been a useful engine. He was very obsessed with the Thomas the Train show and like the best compliment. I mean, that show is all about training future capitalists. <laughs> yeah. The best compliment on the show was like, if you could be a very useful engine. Uh, we needed to be useful enough to clean his room. That would be good. So let's imagine for a moment that the two of you are in your mid-70s. And you're sitting around with Waylon, who's now 35. <laughs> How do you imagine that conversation might go when you're reflecting back on your family? I imagine him having a lot of sentimental uh, memories of camping and traveling. And the same ones we would have. But I feel like the 15, turning 16, some of that comes through every once in a while where you go like, oh, he's still under there. The loving, appreciative, you know, gentle soul. But um, I imagine when we're able to just lay around and he let you just hold him, you know, at that age, that would be reminiscent. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, 
Yeah, he's he's a great writer, and he has written from time to time things about liking having a weird family. Um, he has, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it was really interesting, actually. At some point during, I think the Trump years, uh, at, at some point when the um, uh, Affordable Care Act was under attack, uh, I think Katie, like in a fit of frustration at how hard it's been for us to have our whole family insured on the same insurance said like, well, I'm just going to transition and become a man. So, you know, and like before they married. Yeah. Like she threw that out there and he was just like, but then I won't be a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, ah. <laughs> <so> <laughs> Don't I take away that part of it. Yeah. 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 Like identity was, uh, and, uh, so that made me, I can still be a baby. Yeah. I, that made me feel happy, though, that he was, you know, that he values that. And, you know, one thing, we've been so lucky because we have an extended family of queer parents who all had kids around the same time. And we spend a lot of holidays together in this big group. So it's like he has a whole set of cousins who all have two moms. Um, and... So there is a place where he gets to hang out where it's totally normalized. Um, and I love that we've been able to build this alternative extended family. Yes. Yeah. Well, Katie Page, we're almost out of time, but if you were talking to a young or younger queer couple who was trying to make a life together, what would you tell them? What have you learned over the years that you would try to impart? I would say, you know, we, we haven't talked about it here, but we did quite a long stint of couples therapy and probably, what, four years, three years? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, uh, don't be afraid to work on your relationship in couples therapy, but don't wait until you're in crisis to go to couples mm-hmm. therapy. I think yes. one thing that we did really well was, you know, we didn't wait when we were having issues we didn't wait until things got really bad and then go to couples therapy to break up or something like that. We went to work on our relationship. At learning balance between the sick person and the caretaker, you know, like, you know, that balancing act and letting someone, you know, have feelings that, you know, I was sick and uh, going through treatments for hep C and, um, you know, that chemotherapy was brutal. And um, I remember just times just staring out the window at the therapist office, just, you know, getting through it. Like, let her have her feelings, you know, however you can. But it's like I could barely even use my hands. You know, I was really, really badly ill. And so, like, tolerating that, knowing somewhere deep inside myself that this is for the best and that even if I felt all kinds of feelings and defensiveness that we were getting through we were going to get through to the other side and it was all worth it you know like because you know that brought us there but I think we would have chosen to go eventually to, to do work on communication stuff you know yeah I mean the other thing I would say to a young couple is um you know, when we first fell in love, it was so whirlwind, and we were just merged. Just, like, we were just the lesbian stereotype of <laughs> merged. And um, part of what we were navigating in couples therapy 
I think was still being in love, still being really close, but being able to have our identities more independent and be separate but connected. Um, and I'm so glad that we went through that because now, you know, Katie has her band. I have my writing. I have my fishing. She has her fishing habit. <laughs> I have my running habit. Um, but but learning how to make that transition from that kind of like initial mergedness to like um, separate but together, I feel like that was really important. And I definitely needed hand holding through that. Like feeling safe and connected. But being able to be separate, I feel like that's probably my proudest accomplishment in our relationship. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting me come into your home and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Do you know any LGBT couples with interesting stories and wisdom to share on the show? Jeff would love to meet them. So please contact him through the website at qmarriagementors.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week.